this was the first time I had ever seriously thought about suicide in my life. Welcome to the Depression Files, where we talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. We educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. All right. Uh, hey, I want to say welcome to Eric13. Uh, he is my guest today, and Eric reached out to me after I uh, had sent a tweet out uh, requesting for uh, men who have been through depression and are willing to be interviewed. So, Eric, uh, thank you very much for reaching out to me. Thanks not only for having me, but actually for doing the show. I think that's, uh, I just thought that was a really cool idea when I came across it. Yeah, I'm really excited. So far, uh, got about six interviews down, um, or seven, and just started, uh, you're my second one via Skype. So I've, I'm excited to be able to open it up to people all around the all around the world, actually. And uh, I'm interviewing a guy uh, tomorrow from England. So I was totally prepared to pretend we're in the same room this whole time. Yeah. Just, <laughs> right. We could have done there that. Goes that. A, there goes that. Yeah, I blew that. Uh, so, hey, Eric, if you don't mind, why don't you start by telling us about yourself? Uh, well, I am uh, 31 at the time of this recording. Uh, I grew up in Chicago. And uh, left there probably about, uh, I don't know how long it, it was ago now. Uh, I just realized that the singer from the band Orgy I listened to in high school was 50. So my perception <laughs> of time is just, I probably don't want to think about how long ago it was. But uh, I moved to California from, uh, from Chicago, actually to Silicon Valley, not to Los Angeles where I currently am. Okay. How long in uh, Silicon Valley? Well, I was there probably about five years working for one of those big mysterious tech companies you're not uh, supposed to talk about. Okay, all right. But uh, I came down, a lot of this actually is uh, is very fitting because it seems like depression has, has led my navigation through the country, but I wasn't happy up there, you know. It was... Uh, great work, very fulfilling, but not a lot of uh, not a lot of people my age, not a lot of alternative culture. And uh, when I started getting into film and came to Los Angeles for the first time, I was like, "Oh, here's my people. This is you know, it felt it felt like more community. So I came down here uh, really to kind of kind of see if I could get a little more of what I think is normal, healthy, <laughs> normal, healthy support a little bit. Right. Right. Did you know anybody, uh, in, uh, I'm sorry, you're in LA now, right? Did you know anybody yeah, in LA yeah. when you moved from Silicon Valley or even in Silicon Valley when you left Chicago? It's, uh, it always seems to be at least one person when I make a move. They're okay. my, they're my person to go, this is going to be all right. Right. I'm not going to completely can i swear on this yeah i don't I've mind stopped, at all but uh, i've yeah. stopped myself about six times already so this might be a little rough <laughs> uh, i don't want to fuck up my life completely are you it's okay there right they have you know food trucks and what are the the necessities right really and so when i moved to um when i moved to silicon valley it was 
was actually following a girl, not following a career. And it just sort of one morphed into the other on accident, which I guess is fine. And, uh, and so, yeah, it, it, it uprooted my life pretty quick. I just bought a place in Chicago, like a wing of a hotel was the coolest fucking place. And, (laughs) uh, I, I was mentally getting prepared to kind of, okay, I'm going to be here a while and this is, I'm going to create normal. I'm going to create what is going to be my normal day to day life. And then all of a sudden it was, Hey, uh, now that you signed for this place, I'm moving to California. <laughs> so, wow. wow. So yeah, I had to make that work pretty quick. Yeah. All for a woman. Yeah. And, yeah. And you know, she ended up actually working the same place I did and I had some friends out there. So when I, when I, uh, went out to the Valley, it's weird to call it the Valley actually, cause there's a Valley out here too. Everyone gets confused okay, when I went right. to the, the tech industry. <laughs> Um, I knew some people there and the culture there is such that people move around a lot. Okay. You know, you're there cause your, your skill set is very, very desired. So you have, I mean, it's, it's such a weird bubble from the rest of the country. You know, you have where a lot of the country is trying to find jobs, uh, in the tech industry, you always have, you know, five giants on your back going, well, what if we give you these options or what if we do this? So people leave companies a lot and yeah, it becomes right. very hard to, to maintain friends and contacts there. Right. So, um, do you still have family in, in Chicago then? Actually by this, uh, by this point, I don't think anyone I knew in Chicago is still there. Okay. I was in Chicago right before the, uh, I guess culturally people think of it as Chirac because of the Spike Lee film, although I didn't know anybody who called it that there. Okay. But, um, you know, I did a, sh- it's funny. I did a show out of Chicago for a little while, a radio thing. And if you go back and listen to that, your audience is hip, a podcast. Usually I, usually I say radio thing cause people don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Right. But that's, right. that's not the case here. Uh, if you go back and listen to some of the earlier years, it was myself and a friend of mine. We still do it today. We've been doing it 10 years. It's a crazy long That is a long do. run. Yeah, it's called Double Feature. Go look it up. It's doublefeature.fm. And uh, if you listen to, don't listen to the early years because they're terrible. But if you do, <laughs> okay. occasionally you can hear gunshots in the background. Oh my goodness. Yeah, no joke. No joke. It is, uh, it, we did it from Uptown, which is on the north side. Yeah. So not so bad. But uh, you know, the South side and the West side is really where, where most of the violence is, but uptown is about the worst of the North side. You okay. know, the uptown one day I was getting off of the, uh, the L the, the elevated train system, yeah. right? The subway, but it's above ground at that stop. And I come down the stairs and at the bottom, literally like out of, uh, out of RoboCop or something. There's a bunch of people huddled, this is the middle of winter, huddled around barrels with fires coming out. I mean, I'd never <laughs> actually seen them. And that was, that was my moment to realize I live off the worst stop of this train. There is, I just couldn't do any worse than where I, but we set up a little studio space there in a panic room. Okay. All right. All right. It's cool. The hotel in a panic room. And, uh, we recorded for a while there. And yeah, it's, I guess it got worse and worse and worse after I left. Okay. So, uh, huge crime problems and violence problems. And that basically led everyone I know to flee that, okay. uh, that city. 
So although you uh, had just signed on for a new place, it seems like it might have been an easy place yeah. to ditch out of. Yeah, right, right. Well, <laughs> thankfully, somehow it was easy to sell, too. Right. So I guess I hit right. That would have been the worst is to buy it. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, the entire hotel becomes full of just like gang activity and people selling drugs and weapons and stuff. And then right, that would have been, right. been a bad time, I think. So um, I definitely I, I want to hear more about Double Feature and some of the incredible work it sounds like you're doing. Um, before getting into that, though, is Chicago where you grew up? Uh, the suburbs of okay. Chicago. I grew up in a, a really poor, not the poorest, but a, let's say, low to middle class suburb, I guess. Okay. Um, and so, you know, the, the school systems and stuff there were really, really crowded and I actually moved to the city uh, after getting out of school there. So okay. my whole education was through those suburbs. The city was kind of an upgrade for me. Okay. Despite right. despite the barrel fires, yeah. the, city was, <laughs> the city was a little bit of an upgrade. Okay. All right. And, it, you know, if I remember correctly, it sounds like as far as depression goes, it's been a long battle for you dealing with depression from an early age, was it? Yeah, it's hard to say. I have a really hard time. Uh, I'm a very, very skeptic individual, very science minded. And uh, as it starts to come to the soft sciences, I don't know enough to be skeptical about which things. Right, right. So it's hard for me to look back in my past and go, maybe it started at this moment. It's hard for me to say in general that I believe, you know, you are just born with chemical imbalances or that something brings them out or where it is. But I definitely knew coming into adulthood, uh, especially once I got to California, mm. like this is a part of my day to day life. And it's not just, you know, the basically the equilibrium I had isn't what other people live with. Mm. That's not something I'm sure I knew growing right. up. I think I thought, you know, the moods that I was in, the roller coasters I would hit, anxiety especially. Anxiety, I didn't even know that that was what it was until probably five years ago. Right, right. I just thought everybody freaked out all the time over everything. Yeah. And wondered how the hell any, anybody, you know, got through that. But uh, looking back, there's definitely, you know, I can definitely go, oh, yeah, this made me really anxious. These days were hard for no reason. Mm. And that's about as long as I can remember. Okay. Even, even grade school, you think? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When I, when I was going through, um, high school, I was in kind of like an accelerated, uh, it was like a presentational thing, a, um, a program where you gave a lot of, not necessarily demonstrations, but just presentations. You were publicly speaking. Right. A ton. And, you know, because of that, I mean, that always made me extremely anxious, mm. like run away from school anxious. Right. And uh, and I did a lot of that in grade school, too. And so I think that's part of the reason I didn't because everybody says people would rather die than speak publicly. Right. So I go, oh, it makes everybody anxious. Yeah. Right. But I I had that feeling, you know, all the time with all sorts of different things. Right. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thought, right? Like how um, anxiety impacts everybody on some level of a continuum. Um, sure. And I guess the question is, does it impact your life, right? Is it is it making it coming to a point where you can't speak in front of people because you're so fearful of it, or how much uh, how much does it impact you? Have you had an official diagnosis by a doctor? 
Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's pretty vague. It's depression and anxiety, right? right? So that's, I'm medicated for both of those things. Even generalized anxiety, I bet, just to make it a little more general. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) right, right. Right. Yeah, and you know, sometimes we'll try and drill into specific things, but I've also uh, never done recreational drugs in my life. I don't, I don't think I've had a drink since I was 21. Okay. (laughs) So it's the, the medication part I put off for a long time. And when you start to get into more specifics, you know, I'm in a insurance situation where I see a different doctor pretty much every four visits. I'm switching to somebody else. Just because of insurance. Yeah. So, you know, it's hard to get, uh, I know it's hard to get really deep on stuff. And anytime anybody wants to maybe get a little more specific into a diagnosis, I start looking at switching medications and I start going in my, at a good time in my life to do that. Yeah. Right. Which the answer is always no. The the answer is never. Yes. Let's experiment. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That is a heavy conversation, particularly if you feel like you, you know, you're going to be leaving that doctor. Right. That is very challenging. Um, when it's heavy with every, it's heavy with, uh, everyone in your life too. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, you have to, you basically have to brace, you know, I have my, uh, my, my kind of medical schedule, uh, my producers run it because otherwise they don't know like when I'm going to flip out and hide in a hole for six months and they, they can't, you know, so it's like, I'm, I'm like a public risk to film. So I probably <laughs> okay. shouldn't say that, but I, you know, so I have to have a, a support network around me. That's very aware of what's happening there. And, you know, we've done well so far. And the folks you work with though, have been very supportive. It sounds like. Yeah. Well, especially because, you know, we work, on independent projects. Right. We, uh, if, if we're going to put anything out through a studio, it's either somebody else's work or, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, excuse me, I'm not in charge of that end of it, or I'm going to make it and then show the finished product to someone. Right. So we don't have to deal with a lot of like studio overheads or people who are kind of questioning that instead what what we end up doing is bringing a lot of people in who have the same kind of problems okay and so it's strange in a way that that normal spot i thought i had growing up where maybe everybody feels like this right i've kind of built a crew around me where that is true where everybody does kind of have you know different uh I really, I would even say different mental disorders and we all kind of know how to work with each other on that. And it's just sort of baked into, you know, making sure you have backups on certain days yeah. and, and things of that nature. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Like a, a super supportive, understanding, caring environment to be working in. It, I mean, it's a little hard in Hollywood because people, especially crew, they pick up different projects every day. A lot right. of it's freelance. So, you know, to try and, do it this way is a little different to try and keep the same people around for specifically that reason. It does make things, uh, perhaps unnecessarily harder, but I feel like because of those reasons, it's, it's worth it. Oh, it sounds very worth it. Um, how long ago was it that you've, you got your first diagnosis and, uh, can you tell me about that time? Like, what did that feel like? Was that like, Whoa, this is real. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was after I had decided to leave the tech industry, but while I was still there. So in Silicon so, Valley. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And, you know, 
mental health is treated a lot different there because the they see a lot of repeat kind of things that are probably job induced right. anxiety for instance right? Right, right people who work 120 hours a week and are dealing with deadlines that are very very public you know if you screw up someone a lot of someone's who right, tune into right. keynotes will notice these things yeah and so you have a lot of pressure on you and so you know when i went to see uh actually it started in the er okay i was i was the first spot and that was kind of the okay it's time to do something medical about this yeah and what was it that brought you to the er was it a panic attack or yeah yeah okay. it was um i had found and i don't know you know if if everybody goes through this but it's a hard and incredibly cruel part of this so you know you're having a panic attack maybe a long one maybe you're in a general state of anxiety and at the point where i went this is so bad i have to get a hold of someone and do something you have to go you know look up your insurance or go through some kind of website and then you have to find somebody yeah right and and book an appointment with them and you want that appointment in, I don't know, eight minutes. And <laughs> they're like, well. Three months from now, four months. <laughs> yeah, we're full and we wouldn't take you anyways. And your insurance is wrong. Yeah. And why are, you, why are you even trying to do this? It's, it's just us. Uh, yeah. And so that process, of course, is the last thing someone going through a panic attack wants to do, which is, you know, ironic in a fun way that life works. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, a lot of and, ironies there. Yeah. And so, you know, I find uh, in talking to people, a lot of people start with the ER because of that. Right. Because it's just, I just got to fucking do something. Yeah. I don't know. What do people do when they're like dying? Right. I'll go there. The ER. Okay. Yeah. 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 Did you know what was happening to you at the time? <sighs> kind of. I mean, I didn't, I didn't think about it like anxiety. Hmm. I thought about it like, okay, I'm going through one of these depressive things that happen, you know, I know I have depression. I know something's going on there and it just was not getting better. Mm -hmm. It was one of these waves that it set in and it set in for a while. These things I look back now and go, okay, panic attacks and wasn't triggered, you know, by, by anything specific as far as I can remember. And right. a lot of times they aren't. And so after a while of trying to, I mean, it was probably triggered more so by going through giant listings of, uh, of doctors trying to find somebody yeah, and right. I don't even know what this is and how do I, you know, no one will talk to me for three months. And yeah. so I'm, you know, I'm writing frantic emails going like, I know your office is closed or what, if you get this, can we just do something? And then, you know, I, I think I got, uh, one or two emails back. They were like, yeah, let's set something up for next week, okay. which is great for for you know what they ha how they have to run a business right but right. in my mind i was like i need something i need someone yeah. to come pick me up from my house and make exactly. this stop right right and uh yeah so that was the er so you knew you said you knew that you had some depression prior to that but you didn't have a diagnosis you just kind of knew and were, were dealing with it on your own it sounds like yeah prior yeah. to the er situation well, and it's weird because when I, when I grew up, I grew up around a lot of alternative culture. That was where I'd sort of fit in, in, uh, in the time where I grew up, 
somewhere around the 90s. It was like people were into new metal and it was like a, just a little later than, you know, goth kids in school. Mm. It was kind of like the, the post cure and that sort of era. And so that was such a cliche to go, oh, yeah, all the depressed kids. Right. They were, right. The, you know, they were the weird looking kids that became, you know, emo decades later or hipsters decades later or whatever the snap chat generation is yelling at me right now for not, (laughs) not a, you know, the, the weird kids in high school. Right. 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 And I, I identified there and I, you know, I wanted to fight that cliche. I Mm. thought, well, we're not all depressed. I just, you know, really like the cure. Leave me alone. And, and so once I started getting at you, when, when I was in high school, there's 4,000 people there. So it's easy to have that little click when you start moving around then it's like, you're not just going like, who's wearing the dark eye makeup around here? Let's go make friends with them. Right. You kind of make friends with, you're sort of forced into other social circles that you wouldn't be a part of. Mm. And I think at some point, you know, the idea of like fighting the cliche, I would spend time on my own and I go, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I am feeling depression right now. Like this isn't something that, you know, everybody else goes through. And I just kind of knew that was there for probably, you know, 10 years before I talked to anybody about it. Okay. Wow. Which happens to be actually what I've read is typical. The average is people are challenged with and, and deal with depression on their own for about 10 years on average before seeking support. I mean, it makes sense. You know, you my experience talking to people, talking to friends was always, um, you know, I'd always be getting these sort of faux answers from people, which is this kind of like, you should try not being depressed or you should, what you need is more vitamin D. Are you drinking enough water? And so, you know, it, it, in a way, I mean, I don't fault those people. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They don't have depression. Yeah, exactly. Uh, at at the same time, it just feels like that's the, you know, all that does is make me go, oh, I'm just, I'm just not trying as hard at life as I should be. I need to drink more water and get in the sun more. If I did (laughs) some pushups, I wouldn't be so sad. Like just get your act together, man. Yeah. Right. Watch a happy TV show. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So let me take you back to uh, the ER. So you go into the ER you're having a panic attack. Don't even really know exactly what's going on. Um, that's the easy route into the medical system. What happens there? I wait three hours, which that was not, you know, I mean, that's Better the than ER, three months, right? Better than Yeah, three, it is. <laughs> no, it is. And, you know, I mean, you don't want to do it, but you're not bleeding out yeah. physically. And once you're, I think once you're in the emergency room, the, uh, the panic's not necessarily going to subside, but the chance of, you know, you doing something or yeah, you, right. y- you at least know, okay, at some point somebody in this building is going to yeah. like call my name and, right. and try you're in a safe me. spot, right? I mean, if something yeah, goes drastically yeah. bad, there are people there that will help you, but and in you're the on meantime, the way to a conclusion. right, right. You know that, that, okay, you found the answer, I guess you found a potential 
solution. You don't really imagine a scenario where you go in and talk to a doctor and they say, how many sit-ups have you been doing? Do you get enough water? You know, you go, okay, well, if they tell me that, then once and for all, I've got an answer here. (laughs) Right, right. And whatever, if I just sit in this chair and just keep eating, you know, M&Ms out of this machine, eventually (laughs) someone will talk to me. So... The next time you leave this chair, it will be okay. Right, right. Trying to get through. But, you know, even now I remember those three hours. Yeah. Sitting there staring at a window. It's crazy. It's three hours of my life waiting in a room. But, I mean, I remember it like like years going by. Yeah, well, and I bet your anxiety was skyrocketing like, holy shit, I'm really sitting here in the ER. Um, Yeah. What is going on? You know, one of the things I remember thinking – during that is this is a stupid reason to be here right they're going to be like why are you wasting our time right and questioning that you know it was enough to push me to get there but that's a momentary kind of decision after you sit there for 20 minutes and you see people you know coming in with uh, legs missing or decapitation or whatever happens (laughs) in the ar i guess you start going, okay, well, I, there isn't even any fluid coming out of me anywhere. Like maybe, <laughs> right. like, what am I doing here? You know? Right, right. And just being able to get through it, it was like your your head can be your own worst enemy. Oh, yeah, for sure, especially when depressed, right? When going through depression and, and all that anxiety, and then you, it really starts beating yourself up. Yep. So did you have a, a decent empathetic doctor that you got to see? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, again, be, because of where I was, they went, okay, well, you know, you have some serious anxiety issues, and let's get you medication for that right now, and then, you know, you need to talk to somebody about overall what's going on. Right. But right now, you are freaking the fuck out, and you've been doing that for hours, so, you know, they put me on... uh uh, Ativan, which I still do for anxiety. Okay. And it was like, okay, take this. It's going to calm you out. And, you know, here's information and here's where you should go from here. So in that situation, I mean, it really couldn't have, I, I've actually always found that when I'm at the ER, at least <laughs> that in my many adventures to the ER, <laughs> I have found that the service is often good. Okay, and, good. Uh, and yeah, that, that really couldn't have gone much better in terms of once you get face to face with a person. Oh, that's great to hear. Um, some of the other pieces I've been reading about a lot talk about the need for more mental health training, particularly for family doctors and ER doctors who oftentimes, you know, apparently they'll be like, you know, yeah, your heart's racing, but we did an EKG and everything looks fine. You're great. See you later. So, uh, it's really, it's good to hear a, um, you know, an empathetic, uh, decent, uh, experience at the ER. Well, again, I think a lot of that's probably location, you know, they, uh, I mean, anybody who watches the HBO TV show, Silicon Valley is just like that. It's (laughs) so much so I can't watch that. That show is like a trigger (laughs) to me. That is is funny. So on point and, you know, people deal with, uh, you know, you have corporate sponsored yoga and gurus and <laughs> people go on hikes every weekend to clear their mind. It's a culture that I think does come a lot from people trying to deal with anxiety. Yeah. 
And so I don't know, maybe I had a good doctor because he was, uh, he was exposed to all that. Right. And in that way, like, yay, Silicon Valley bubble. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, <laughs> right. I don't know. It, it's terrible if it's not that way everywhere. And I've certainly found that, you know, my, um, uh, my sort of upkeep, my support medically since then has been lackluster. It right, hasn't been right. the same. I feel like if I could just talk to that ER doctor all the time, maybe I'd be in a better spot. Yeah. Well, it's so incredible. that guy is, thanks. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you, ER doc. Yeah, well, like you said, I mean, switching doctors because of insurance, that's, you know, that's a bitch part of our system. We have, yeah, I think we have yeah. a terrible mental health system. And when you have to jump around from doctor to doctor, and like you said, explain your story, explain your situation, explain what meds you've been on and what you think each has been doing for you to a new doctor um, could be really challenging. Not to mention that that doctor doesn't know what you're like uh, for your regular typical baseline. Sure. Right? Sure. I mean, maybe you're normally a kind of a quirky dude who likes to listen to yeah, movies right, right. and swear a lot or maybe, <laughs> right. uh, you know so right. they don't know your baseline well, well nobody's going you're watching Countable Holocaust too many times here take more <laughs> more medication but I do see your your point there it is <laughs> California is just a especially Los Angeles there's such a drug culture here there is uh, such a an abuse of pharmaceuticals here and, you know, I don't know if that helps or hurts in getting care. People are certainly not hesitant to write you a prescription. Right, right. So maybe maybe that's good or or not. Yeah. This is another one of those areas where I, you know, I have no base of – there's no uh, sample group in this, right. you know, in this test case here. Yeah. So I don't really know how to, how to compare that. Right. Were you, you – well, you think of things like uh, opioids, especially, I mean, there's a lot of uh, prescription drugs are becoming what the, you know, we still have a huge heroin problem in California, too. But what the street drug problem was in the 90s, I feel like we're seeing that with prescription drugs here. Yeah. And that makes that can make it really confusing, especially as you're switching around doctors going, is this person just so used to see people yeah. write the thing on the pad and, you know, yeah get on to the next person. Right. Right. Well, and you mentioned heroin and, uh, it's a known, known concern that people jump from opioids to the heroin. I don't even know sure. why, maybe less cost. Um, Oh, sure. Easy, sure. easy I to get so. your hands on. And, well, uh, you don't have to go see a, a doctor. It's, right. uh, you know, here it's a little easier for people who are addicted to something like, um, I don't know if people want Xanax, they can go get that from a random person because so it's so easy to get prescriptions for that and people just fill them and sell them, I guess. But I think especially in in parts of the country where people have been on painkillers or different, um, they had a prescription for some kind of painkiller when they're out of that. Yeah, they're going to switch to the cheaper alternative yeah. heroin that, you know, exactly. their friend can get them and they don't have to make a, a an yeah. appointment three months out. Right, right. So after uh, after your experience at the ER, were you able to connect with a a doctor, and did you did you find go to a psychologist, a psychiatrist, both, or what were your steps from there after that experience? I went to somebody who did a little bit of both, okay. and uh, that was actually one of my most permanent doctors. And when I went there, you know, we we started medication right away for depression and we continued on the Ativan for anxiety. 
But one of the things, you know, and I was really, again, really skeptical of this because of where I was, but he wanted to show me these breathing exercises. Hmm. And that was one of the things I was kind of afraid of going into this is, you know, get me somebody who's going to write me a prescription and not tell me to drink more water, right. not tell me if I do yoga, it will help. And so, and he realized that and he said, look, I know, but just give it a shot. We're going to do the other stuff too, but mm. let's just think about these, these breathing things. That was actually something that, that was a level of help. I don't feel like I've gotten anywhere else. And when you think about it, I mean, medically, your heart rate is elevated. You want to, if you do exercise, your heart rate goes up. Right. If you relax, your heart rate goes down. Yeah. Right. And so finding a way to clear your head enough so that the anxiety isn't overwhelming your thoughts and just find a way to steady your breathing. If yeah. you steady your breathing, your heart rate goes down and it can't hurt. Right. It, it, it might not be a cure-all for certainly the day I was having panic attacks for hours Right. I, I can't just sit there and meditate for, for hours at a time. Yeah. But I don't know, you know, maybe if I had known breathing exercises at that point, I could have taken five minutes and chilled out. And that's the kind of thing I try and do when I'm in a situation where I know I can't be on Ativan. I don't want anything impairing my thoughts. Mm. Uh, days on set are especially like that. Like you have to be as sharp as possible. You're dealing with nonstop problems. And you don't want anything to, you know, to impair that in any way. Right. But you also don't want to be flipping out. So, yeah. So it sounds like you were a bit uh, on the resistance side at first when you heard about the breathing, but you actually gave it a yeah. shot. And now, you, now it sounds like it's something that you believe in and utilize to, to help oh, all support the, all you. the time. Yeah. All the time. I have a, a heart rate monitor. I have an Apple watch and it just, you know, it does a bunch of weird things. But one of the things it'll do is tell you your heart rate. And there's actually a little button on it um, where uh, I believe Apple thinks it's for mindfulness. Uh, it would be a good idea to just take a minute and just breathe in sync with these vibrational cues that it gives you. Right. It uh, is this haptic feedback that just sort of, you know, it taps you at an increasing rate and then you exhale and you just follow that for a minute. It's a minute to sit somewhere and go, what am I doing? Where am I right now? What is this moment? Not get lost in things. And I have a feeling it was probably also developed by people working 120 hours a week who perhaps need a minute to think about <laughs> right, their one right. minute. But it's incredibly helpful for me to go, okay, this is one of those moments. I can hit a button right from, it's just on there. There's a, there is a button attached to my body that I hit that tells me how to breathe for a minute. Yeah, right. And uh, I find that really helpful. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And having uh, a piece of technology makes it feel a little less pseudoscience-y. You know, I was already kind of convinced, but then once once people start really thinking about, well, we haven't talked about mindfulness as a concept in, uh, in health to a great extent, you know, as a, as a populace, as a country, or maybe, maybe even globally, and to start including things like that in a way that you can see the science mm. right afterwards. You can right. go, this is a 60 second timer. See if you feel better afterwards. Also, here was your heart rate before. Here's your heart rate now. Yeah. And that was, the, I mean, that was the, the proof I needed on that. I go, okay, well, someone demonstrated that to me. I'm going to start doing that. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. A little bit of uh, data and science behind yeah. you yeah. being able to see like, and, and 
probably helped you be a little more open-minded towards it. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, because you know, a lot of this stuff is going on in your head and there becomes all these questions of how much of that is chemical, how much is a, it really is sort of a mind over matter thing. That's right. where I kind of raise an eyebrow is when I start hearing mind over matter mm. because there are things you cannot mind over matter <laughs> Yeah, and f finding out, but also, I mean, your brain controls everything. Right. So right. there, there's lines in there and to try and figure out what works and especially what works for you. I'm always looking at data for mm. that. Right. Makes sense. So you, uh, you do some breathing. Uh, what other, uh, tools do you got in your tool belt that you do to help manage yourself? Um, oh, give up for the day, go to bed. You know, those, <laughs> those are, those are unfortunately, I, we, we were talking about this before. I mean, I, uh, I do interviews and stuff about this a lot, so I'm pretty lighthearted about it, but it's an awful fucking subject. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is I've been in a pretty terrible place for a couple months and a lot of my days are just, you know, I get to 6 PM, I'm feeling horrible. Uh, that's part of the ride of medication, by the way, like you're doing it and it's working, but it's working does not mean it goes away. Mm. So, you know, I still, I'll get to yesterday. It gets about six o'clock and I go, this is so awful. I'm faced with the choice of taking Ativan again, which hits a nice, it's a whole other topic, but a nice blurry part of my mind that goes, is this drug abuse or not? Right. Am I, right. am I taking a thing every day to feel better? And how is that different from recreational drugs? Hmm. And so in my mind, I'm fighting that I'm going, okay, well, let's just see if we can get over this ourselves. And, uh, and I'm going, I can't go to bed at 6 PM. I'm going to wake up at two in the morning and it's going to throw my old day off. And, but I find a lot of times that rather than suffering for a couple hours, that's what I do. And I'm trying to get over that. I don't think that's a healthy thing to do. Yeah. I don't think calling it quits on your day, you know, to go, well, I've had a good, good eight hours of being awake. Let's just shut down for the next 14. Right. Um, but that's been my management there's, you know, there are worse things to do. So that's yeah. been my management tactic for a little while. Okay. And you can't, uh, so it seems like you have for a long time, it's something that you actually have to deal with and manage on a daily, regular basis. Would you say yeah. that's, that's yeah. accurate? Well, I have to manage it and a lot of people around me, unfortunately, have to manage it. Yeah. But that again, that support, I'm a pretty isolated person. I'm working in post a lot right now. Okay. Uh, my crew is out doing other stuff. Right. You know, they, they manage production days. So they're, if, if a camera's not rolling, they're not around doing anything. Right. Right. And the truth of a, uh, a filmmaker's life, depending on what kind of, if all you do is direct, you're just on set all the time. But if you produce and you see a film from start to end, you know, you work on a film for 600 days and you spend five of them on a set. Right. And nobody right. really thinks about like, oh, that's what filmmakers do. But you spend, especially independent, you do so many jobs on your own. Yeah. And so I found that it actually helps me to literally go, this person's job is to go, hey, are you getting any work done over there? Are you being depressed and sleeping? And if you are, I'm going to go over there and just physically drag you out of bed and find a way to to like keep you pepped for, it's almost embarrassing to say, right? It's like, I need a person to just 
make sure that I continue being alive and moving forward with my day and not giving up right as, as a job. That's yeah. like a job. Right. And, right. you know, and they know that, and that's part of having that, that crew that all supports each other. Yeah. But it's true. You'll go through, everybody needs to be working all the time and you'll go through periods where if people are in a slump, they're not gonna, you know, mm-hmm. they're not going to be there a hundred percent. Right. And you gotta, you gotta find a, a way to make sure sort of a, a, a catch, a safety net for that, a fallback to make sure that's not happening. Right. Do you so think somebody bangs down the door and, and strikes out of that? <laughs> right. Do you think the uh, isolation part of your job is part of what's going on? Terrible, for you? fucking terrible. Yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. Yeah. And but, is there anything you can do about that piece? Well, you know, the thing is, uh, having people around to work with you on elements of, uh, of a movie that helps you're around people, you know, you're doing that. Right. But I'm thinking back to the tech industry was people are buzzing all that. You're never alone buzzing 24 hours. You can be, uh, in an office or on some kind of retreat or in whatever crazy location and people, that's the total opposite, right? I mean, there's showers there. There are people literally right. live in the parking lot because why even if the housing's expensive, I'm going to go sleep in my car for four hours and I'll sleep at my desk for four or in a beanbag chair. I mean, no Holy joke. People shit. literally just, I knew people who did not have addresses, right? Who just got their mail at a PO box or had it, or oh had it delivered God. to work. Wow. You go in, there's a stack of Netflix there <laughs> of uh, people that this kind of timestamps that I guess, if I can't recall the exact dates, yeah, when, right. when people got stacks of Netflix. Right. And so, you know, you're always, there's always somebody there. You're never alone there. And if I had to compare right now to then, although I'm in a pretty bad spot at the moment, I think overall my time in LA has been a lot better than my time, even when I was around a lot of people like that. Right. So I don't know, you, you pick choices, right? You gotta, this is just part of the industry I'm in and I yeah. try and make it not that way as often as possible. It would be great to work in a situation where I can hire a different person for VFX and sound and Foley and color right, and all right. these things and then just go over and hang out with them all the time. Right, right. Sometimes you got the budget to do that, sometimes you don't. Yeah. You suffer for the art a little bit. Right. Is there anything else? I mean, you mentioned particularly in the past couple of months, it's been bad. Anything in the past couple of months that you think has exacerbated your depression? It's hard to say again, without having that, uh, um, that test case to compare to right without having the the placebo group. Mm. I don't know. I would, you know, if I did a couple of things differently, would it be better or worse? I just have no idea. And so when and, you, I'm sorry to cut you off. When you say no, you're, no. you're like two to three months has been really bad. What does that look like for you? I mean, the, so far you've mentioned being in bed, right? Crashing sure, early sure, at like sure. six and then it fucks up your sleep and you're getting up at all funky hours and stuff. So the sleep piece, anything, what else? And, and, and is it a body sensation for you? So for me, Depression was two separate bouts of major depressive disorder where my entire body just I did not feel like myself at all 
like mm. at all. I mean, I remember talking to the therapist, talking to my wife, saying, I just want to feel like myself and had crying bouts. And um, I mean, it was awful. And the suicidal thoughts the, um, is is needing to crash and kind of your body winding down early in the day the extent of it or do you have other bodily kind of sensations yeah i mean you know what let's just get fully into this uh the, let's do it the the going to sleep is because that is the least of the bad options yeah right i mean uh the the film that we're working on now was written from a suicidal place it was written as an alternative to committing suicide really and uh that's a it's a fucking terrifying thing. And so, yeah, you know, going to bed early seems like, well, dodged a bullet there, made it through another day. So right. that's great. But it's, um, you know, it's suicidal thoughts. That's certainly a big thing. Depression in general feels to me like a weight. Mm. It, I don't have the feeling of, of kind of being out of my skin. Um, I, because I just, I feel this, you know, all the time. I know what it's like when it's not here. I know what it's like for that weight to not be on me. Right. But I know the feeling of just being handed a cannonball. Yeah. And just, you can't, that's one of the things we, we spend a lot of time actually kind of meditating on as we're going through this movie is we have to develop a sound of depression. What mm -hmm. does depression sound like? How do we manifest its you know, as a thing in an art piece and talking to it, it's probably a lot of the same journey you're on talking to people is you get a lot of people who describe it very differently. Right. And it, it manifests in different ways in different people. And for me, it's that weight. It's that sort of extreme loss of motivation. Yeah. Um, you know, to, that's probably where where any thought of suicide would come from, too, is you start thinking all right, I'm going to go to bed for the next 12 hours. And then when I wake up, my favorite TV shows on, I, I look forward to this. I have a lunch date, so let's just sleep until Wednesday. And then I'll, and if you don't have those things on your calendar, you kind of go like, let's go to bed. And I don't know, when are we waking up? Why wake up? What's right. The point of, and that's when you start going, oh yeah, that's death. That's, I just want to go to bed and there's nothing to look forward to. So I'll stay there. That's being dead. Right. Right. And, uh, I, I, I think it goes without saying that that's not, that's, that's not where you want to be. Right. Right. So, you know, trying to find, trying to find stuff to put on the calendars been helpful, but it doesn't always help with that weight. It's a lot of things on the calendar that get canceled when they come up mm. because of that just extreme absence of motivation get canceled by you when they come Yeah, up. yeah, you just go, fuck it, I can't do yeah. that. I can't leave and drive for eight minutes and then see three people? That's impossible. Yeah. How, how does anyone do that? Have you had days like that where you say, fuck it, I'm going to do this because I need to do this and, and I will feel better once I do it? <laughs> the, the date with three people or the suicide? The, the three people deal. Let's, ah, uh, right, not, right, right. not the suicide one. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the that's the trick is just to somehow tell yourself to do it. Yeah. It's like exercise. Yeah. It's exactly. like you don't want to exercise and you kind of just go, ah, 
really should though. Yeah. And sometimes you just don't. And sometimes you do. But in my case, I, I just like never exercise. Maybe that was a bad example, but (laughs) it's just, you, you go, okay, well, this is a God, especially in film, you're supposed to network and schmooze Mm. and talk to people. Right. And I just don't want to go to a thing with a bunch of fake conversations and then I'm going to want to leave and you just got to make yourself do it. Right. And I don't know, maybe you fail 90% of the time, but you, it, that's the struggle anyways. Yeah. Do you tend to beat yourself up about not doing something and taking it off your calendar uh, because uh, you couldn't motivate to do it and then you beat yourself up about it? Because I feel like that would also allow me to spiral down worse into a deeper depression because then I get pissed at myself. Yeah, I guess I get a, a kind of feeling, especially with not getting things done. That's the bit, the social stuff. I, a, I hope nobody in my crew listens to this, but, uh, I have one of my producers. She totally knows this. Uh, Sheila is her name. Hi, Sheila. Sheila, Hi, Sheila schmoozes so I don't have to. That's like her part of the job <laughs> right. is like Eric's not going to come to this thing. But I'm really light and sociable and fun and you like hanging out with me anyway. So it's better. <laughs> so, you know, that's again, that's just one of those things like you start to adapt to your situation. For me, the things that are like that are uh, where, where I feel bad and beat myself up about them or when I'm missing deadlines or I'm not hitting a due date or whatever. And in a way that motivates me to, to always do those things Mm. because those are the things that I, I know I get bummed about. Right. And if I'm supposed to have something done by a certain date and it's not done, I'm going to be so unhappy with myself and that's going to be unbearable. And I know that's where the spiral goes. Mm -hmm. And oddly, I think that motivates me a lot. I'm, I'm really good about basically making sure that never happens. Okay. Because I know what comes next, and it's just, it's not good. Right, right. So um, you have other kind of go-tos when you are in a funk for this two to three month, other things that you're trying to do to get back on the path of better mental health? Sometimes it's projects. Sometimes it is... Uh, you know, you write a bit about it or even if journaling even type if of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I wanted to say, uh, scripts, but really a lot of my scripts come from journaling in the third person mm. and just kind of going, let's just describe how this situation's been and do it in kind of a narrative style instead. Right. And I, you know, I'm sure not all of those are going to be great movies or anything, but it's an exercise. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I mean, I try and journal daily, uh, mostly because I can't remember anything, right? which could be a side effect of the Ativan, something I'm worried about, but, uh, there, it's just so hard for me to remember things. So I keep a lot of calendar appointments. I can tell you, you know, when, when they ask for my alibi of this time and date of seven years ago, I can look it up pretty well. Right. And, uh, not that that's my concerned. That was a really suspicious thing to say, wasn't it? (laughs) A little on the suspicious side. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) (laughs) That is how I think about it though. I go, okay, I, I know, you know, I, it's like I have the world's greatest memory because I just write it all down and then look at it. Right. Uh, It's like faking it in the studio. You know, it's like, you know what day we met? I'll tell you exactly the date and time and what I was eating. Give me a moment. I'm recalling it. This is how a photographic memory works. Check the journal. 
Yeah, right. Flip, flip, flip. <laughs> you can scroll on a phone now, so you don't make the page yeah, exactly. noise. Exactly. Used to be the hard part. Right. Yeah, and so so it'll be new projects for me. It'll be uh, writing, journaling, anything I can to just you know, you're gonna sit and think. I feel like that's part of the downward spiral is that you you think and you think and you have no external input and you're on an island and things get worse and worse and you have these pretend conversations in your head. Mm. And if you can do that on paper, I don't know, just keep doing it until someone calls you and then, yeah. you know, you have some external stimulation or something. Right. But uh, that helps me a lot. And I think coming up with just new ways to be busy, to fill time, I try and fill time in a way that's productive in creating something and not just rearranging files in iTunes or something. But right, so, right. <laughs> sometimes it's even that it's just zenning out on, I'm going to manage some data for a while. Right. I'm going to clean out this, you know, thing and it gets your mind active on another thing. And hopefully that helps. Yeah. It uh, certainly helps stop the ruminating or perseverating. Um, totally. and spinning downward. Um, hey, can you tell us more about the project you're working on currently? I know you mentioned that it had to do with suicide in mm -hmm. a way. Mm -hmm. I was living in downtown LA and I got on a new medication. This was the weirdest thing that I feel like if there's, if anyone ever asked me, you know, uh, what's something people who don't have depression don't know about or yeah. something I didn't know about a, a while ago. There is this side effect of depression medications that is possibly the most insanely ironic thing in existence, which is that it may lead to thoughts Suicidal of suicide or self-harm. Yeah. Right? How insane is that? Is that ridiculous? Yeah. And I think I experienced that actually. Yeah, yeah. it is ridiculous. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if we're moving around chemicals in the head, okay, yeah. so that's, it's not like they decided what side effects to put in. Eh, right, what would be right, funny right. ones to put in here? I don't know, diarrhea, suicidal <laughs> thoughts, just, you know, what, how do we make people's lives miserable? I really do believe uh, they're, they're trying to, I'm not like a conspiratorial, <laughs> yeah. conspiratorial big pharma guy or anything. I think okay. they're trying to make the best medication they can. Right. And because that's what you're doing, yeah. it's, it's going to impact your mood. And right. Maybe it swings the pendulum the wrong way. And so I found myself in one of those moments. And this was the first time I had ever seriously thought about suicide in my life. How long ago happen. was this? It doesn't happen a lot. It was about two and a half years ago. Okay. Um, it's like you had a, a plan type of situation? Well, I had started taking this medication. It had been a couple of days. I was sitting on the couch. I was in a a uh, high rise in downtown and I would just look at the balcony and just picture myself just taking a running leap off of it. Right. And, uh, you know, you, I'm told that's not terribly uncommon for people to, you know, they, they get to a height and they think about what if I fell off right, or something to that effect. But I was sitting there going, that would be a way to do it. Oh, mm. I could do that right now. That would be really easy. And for me, that was something thankfully that I knew, Oh, this is not me. I don't, think about things like this. Right. And I need a way to sit and not think about that. You know, uh, death, especially years ago was so I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. I don't think there's an afterlife. So dying is pretty much the, the again, the worst, uh, worst case scenario. Right. Right. 
especially if you're going to miss those TV shows you were planning on waking up for in a couple of days. So really awful. Death is really awful. News uh, here on your show. And so I'm, you know, killing myself is the last thing I'm going to do. And when I started thinking that, I'm going, how could it be better? This is just a weird thought for me. And I realized immediately, oh, medication is, oh, this is, this is that thing that could happen that's ridiculous. It's happening. And I, I sat down and I journaled in the third person and that was the start of that project, uh, which later became disposition, the name of its disposition. And it's, uh, you know, it's a festival thing. I don't, it's not a thing to plug because nobody can see it. It's at festivals. <laughs> see it at festivals. I get it. It's not even at festivals yet. So if you go to film festivals, I'm probably going to be running and screaming in your face to go see it anyways. All I'll right. be that guy running around with a megaphone going, please go see this. A film festival uh, would be the only way to get our hands on it? As of now. Okay. That is, uh, yeah, that's the case. Maybe that'll change in the future. Maybe not. But I have an entire movie database that yeah, you can, yeah, yeah. I like making jokes that nobody understands, but you and I, that's really good to do. <laughs> right, uh, right. Yeah. Go on IMDb and pop in my name and it'll, if it's not in there, then something better will hopefully come up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You, I mentioned to you just uh, before the interview, how I uh, noticed you had your own page and that got me a little nervous. <laughs> yeah. Don't be nervous. Yeah. Don't be nervous. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So this is a movie that's in production right now. It's, uh, I wrote it and then we spent the time doing that thing where you go out and you find your, your filmmaking soulmates. And I wanted to, I didn't just want to hire anybody, which I know that sounds like, duh, but it happens here. Mm. You just go quick, fill that crew. You know, I'm going to hire five department heads and they'll hire their people and we'll just off to the races. And in a lot of cases, that's absolutely what you should do. But I was so picky about I, I need to hand select the man holding the lights. You know, okay. I need to make sure we we get exactly the right people on this. And I went out to the people behind the scenes who made my favorite recent horror movies. It's uh, I, it's kind of a a thriller, I guess. It's a, I call it a horror movie. I don't really know what that means. Right. It's right. It's about depression. It's yeah. scary. I don't know. Uh, there's blood in it. It's a horror movie. I don't know. But I went out to the people who make my favorite modern horror movies, the ones that I think are, are good, but get dismissed or people don't see them. And I find out, okay, who shot this? Oh, Will Barrett shot this. That's my camera guy. That's my cinematographer. I need to, you know, he's first on the list and I would go through and I'd make these lists and then I'd start making calls and I'd call up the first on the list and I go, Hey, Will, this is Eric 13. You have no clue who I am. Uh, we both knew this director at some point. I don't know. Maybe that's cool. Anyways, I have this film that doesn't pay any money, but uh, here's the artistic vision for it. Sounds like a great and, pitch. Know, yeah, you go through your, yeah, I know. I'm great at this. I got really good at it. Let me tell you, especially when you have to get financing for these. Right. Hi, right. I'm making a short film. Uh, you'll lose all your money. And I need like $10,000. Oh, you're cool with that. Great. So, you know, you... You work on that a lot, and uh, I don't know. Maybe you just try people until one is feeling funny one day and writes you a check. Right. But right. Uh, so I'd go, I'd go down those lists. Actually, Will was great. It was uh, I'm going to call the first of the top 20 names I prepared, and he goes, "Oh yeah, I can kind of see these colors and see that. Okay, yeah, let's do this." I was cool. like, 
the fuck, man? I had nine <laughs> other names. You can't at least give me a hard sell on this. <laughs> but yeah, so he was great. And we we had success pretty much all the way down the line awesome. with that. People, right. we just hit the people who went, oh, that speaks to me. Or I could do something really clever with that. Right, right. And they got on it. And then, you know, we had to seek out the actors who could play these parts. And I wanted somebody who had kind of struggled with depression yeah. uh, themselves. And we got uh, Sarah Malika Lane to do it, who if you hang out on Netflix a lot, you know, a lot of her stuff's on there. But she did a great film called Sunchoke and she was in Jailbait, which so many people have seen. And uh, she, you know, we talked a lot about she didn't even audition. We just mm. talked on the phone for a long time about depression. And then she spent some time asking about, you know, OK, well, I want to really get to know who this character is and then just be them for a couple days and uh, and then we started filming it. Wow. And we, cool. we we went through it, you know, we had such a good plan for it. We went through it just in a in a matter of like five or six days or something. And uh, I think it turned out so much better than anyone could have even imagined. You filmed you know, we the were, entire thing in five to six days? Yeah, you know, it is it's a short film. It's meant as kind of a calling card, but shorts, you know, twenty minutes. Which, okay is uh, you're sitting down and watching a movie. Right. And we didn't want to do anything about it that felt like short film. We wanted it to feel like, okay, we're going to tell this story about this uh, this woman going through this. She just switched medications or she's on something. It's giving her these thoughts of suicide. Hmm. And so the makeup of the movie is uh, starting in her therapist's office with, with a scene that, you know, that was so great to open the, the script. It's a very dry scene which I was worried about. But if you have gone to, a, excuse me, a psychiatrist and had them disinterested and they're just typing away on their computer <laughs> and like, there's a, there's a point where, where he goes, uh, are you having any thoughts of suicide or self harm? And she pauses like really deliberately and gives him like <laughs> the worst lie. Just like, no, <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, I do think about killing myself all the time, but no, right. It's basically her, you know, and he keeps typing a, away. Not a funny movie at all, but that is. Yeah. And people read that and they were like, this is this is what I do every week. This is actually every month that I go in and have this. Yeah. And uh, and then she goes through these moments where we kind of see that she's literally stalked by her depression. Right. It is a, a thing. We use a lot of old school special effects, the non-digital, very practical. You know, she was a genius effects artist. And we played with light and sound a lot to create these moments of this darkness stalking her and how these extreme decisions she makes to deal with that. Uh, these kind of fatalities that she imagines or these different head spaces she's in, in a way both that people with depression, uh, this part actually surprised me. I, I made it mostly to go, hey, suicide from depression meds, that's nuts. And that was the premise yeah, of the movie. Right. And then to go on from there and hopefully show people, okay, well, this is, you know, if, if you're telling your friends drink more water, this is actually kind of what they're going through to give that perspective. But yeah. I found a lot of people with depression, I didn't, I didn't sit there going, people with depression are going to want to see their own story and how awful mm. it is. But people relate to it. And I think just right. knowing that, uh, that that's, happening and that's not just you right that this is you know that that moment i had going sitting in the er going is this stupid 
am I stupid being here? I think that's kind of it. Yeah. I think it's kind of people going, yeah, it feels, this is the worst. Mm -hmm. It feels as bad as this movie is graphic or terrifying or whatever. And that's not to say that's okay, but that's reality. Right. And other people are going through that and man, this film makes it seem like suffering, which it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I hear people sometimes say, don't use the word suffer. Don't say somebody suffers from depression. You have to say they live with depression. And I can understand if you're speaking in general terms, like the person lives with depression. But like right now, it sounds like you're struggling with your depression the past two or three sure. months. Or if somebody told me I didn't struggle with depression, I'd pretty much be like, fuck you. To, well, don't yeah, tell I mean, me I'm I didn't a, struggle with depression. That was, you know, I'm a pretentious art guy. Life is struggle. That's, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't know another life. Right, I see a lot of right. people around me who don't seem to have that life. Yeah. But for me, that is, it's, uh, it's a game of survival against yourself, which yep. is a sentence that just sounds so moronic, but right, is absolutely right. what it is. And that's, that's why I called it that. That's where the title came from, which doesn't really play into the movie at all. But, uh, disposition is that it's how you deal with the fact that this is always there. Mm. This isn't a fight with a monster that you're going to defeat by doing a magical thing. Right. This is a thing that stalks you and haunts you and it can come at you at any moment. Yeah. And you're going to do things to manage it. Mm -hmm. Some are going to fail and some are going to work. Yeah. It's going to influence your outside relationships. And in the end, you might you're basically looking over your shoulder your whole life. Right. Which is a bad thing to have to do. But let's talk about reality. If yeah. you if you are of my mindset from my own experience is that this probably isn't going to go away. It might get managed better, but right. until uh, until my inevitable end, I am going to be aware that at any moment this thing could just happen. Right. And, right. Uh, you know, disposition is kind of, I think, accepting that it's kind of going, OK, well. This is how life is. This is a fact of life. Yeah. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm going to deal with it. It's going to be there all the time. And it's kind of a slice of how that girl, uh, how she deals with different parts of it and in a way that isn't going to defeat it, isn't going to make it go away. It's just sort of here's a couple of days of a particularly intense moment. And that's one of the big things I, I wanted to get across is – that gut punch of uh, this doesn't get a big resolution. This right. doesn't have a big triumphant moment. There's a little bit of her realizing things, but there's no, oh, good, we killed depression. Yeah, right. It's, it's done gone. Forever. Yeah, Yay. right. And those are some of my favorite films are ones that sort of give you that fuck you ending, that kind of gut punch of unsolved, unsettled, yeah. uh you know, you don't get the on the nose resolution. Right. I think, right. I think we're seeing that more and more in film too. I think you see more and more films that aren't afraid to piss the audience off at the end by going yeah. shrug. I don't know. Bye. And yeah. uh, that's, I that's just watched of, one, uh, probably right up on one of the genres you like, uh, no country for old men. Sure. It's sure. The Cohen like, stuff is all great. Yeah. Did, did that great. dude, did he survive now? He was in the nasty crash at the end. And sure. sure. <laughs> you deal with a lot of ambiguity like that in life. And I think you, yeah, yeah. you do it in storytelling immediately feels we've been trained in storytelling to feel like, well, okay, so what's the moral of this story right. at the end? 
important. And I think audiences are a lot smarter today about films than, than really they've ever been. Yep. And are start of realizing, oh, it's that cliche about it's the journey, not the destination. Right. That right. it's a film cliche that is about film. You right. Know, it's about right, right. well, what did I see along this uh, along this path? Yeah. And I'm enjoying more and more the the movie. I mean, that's my kind of movie is yeah. the one where you're you're stunned at the end, going, I don't know how to deal with this. Right. And you damn well should be, because that's how people feel. They don't. If I made you feel like, well. That sucks. What happens next? Right. What do I? Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. exactly and I think that. it's kind of cool, too, because different people come up with different perspectives and have different ideas about what that what different pieces meant. Um, that's so one of the coolest parts of filmmaking. Yeah. Is you, I've, I've almost heard none of the you know, you, you try and hit certain pieces and people get those. Right. But the takeaways are never identical. Yeah, They're exactly. They're always something unique. So hey, it's I, a real. Sorry, go ahead. No, uh, I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say it's a really, it's a really rewarding part of doing that because it's you sit there and go like, is this piece of art good or interesting or worth doing? And then you see how so many people react in so many ways, and it's almost up to, you know, you just make things and put them out there yeah. and see how people react. I, I think that's, uh, man, that's one of the for for all the things about this that are not satisfying for right. all the things about depression and about focusing on it and writing about it, seeing how other people react. It almost feels like some kind of charity. It just feels like people just come up to you and go, thanks for doing this. Thanks yeah. for making this this way. This helped me. And you just go, oh, fuck, I didn't even realize I was doing It's like accidental charity. Yeah. Oh, it's and awesome. It, it, it feels awesome. Yeah, it does. It's a really, for all the morbid things we talked about, I think that's a, it's a really rewarding thing. Yeah. And I think helping people, um, for me, has been very therapeutic. Um, I've been mentally healthy for three years, and I still go to a men's support group for depression and anxiety to help myself yeah. and also to give back and try to help other guys who are struggling. Um, so I'm really curious as a producer, um, I've read about different media guidelines and things for reporting suicides and such. And I'm wondering if you have strong beliefs on that or how you deal with that. Um, and I know, um, I never watched yet 13 reasons why, but there's been so much talk about that because it's been so yeah, popular yeah, yeah. and is it good or is that bad? It started conversations, but it also maybe glamorized suicide and they actually showed her suicide and stuff like that. So curious about your thoughts on that. Well, that's one of the things that, uh, I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. I know it's going to be a hard time when I watch it and I know as an artist, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful thing that I have to go to. I'm going to have to, or maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a piece of trap. I don't know. I haven't seen it. Right. But, uh, I'm assuming from the way, when stuff starts to stir controversy, I get really interested in that. There is a great joke that Louis C.K. told in, uh, I, I think the stand-up is called 2017. Okay. Have you seen this? I haven't seen 2017, you, but I you know Louis C.K. hear Louis C.K.'s name and it just uh, provokes a smile. Oh, good. yeah. Uh, and he is, uh, his work is creatively, I mean, especially his, uh, his effects show. It's just all genius. It's just so much genius in so many different ways. But he's talking about when you go talk to somebody and they, they say, you know, well, are you having any thoughts of suicide or self-harm? And you can't say yes because you know they hit the big red button when that happens and then people run in the room and take you yeah, away or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, I don't really know what happens when you say that, but there is this feeling of, 
oh, don't say that. Oh, that's when outside forces intervene. Right, right. And so I try to, as a producer myself, when I'm looking around this crew of people who might be feeling this stuff, we have to talk about suicide constantly and there's no lines. You know, we're getting into, we're desensitized to a lot of this stuff anyways. Right. So right. it's it's hard knowing physically there how people are going to react or how seriously you should take certain things. I mean, if my producer is coming over to make sure I'm still alive, then obviously that's almost an intervenable, uh, it really probably is an intervenable line. Maybe that's how she's intervening. Right. But um, that's something that I try not to judge during those conversations because they're, we've made the decision to talk about art. And that's also how I feel on the, on the producing side, as far as what should be allowed to come out mm. and what shouldn't. I think that more conversation is always better. Yeah. It's a very, uh, it's a very like libertarian approach to ideas. It's a very free market sort of everybody fight, uh, Bad speech with more speech, as uh, Pendulet says, <laughs> and um, and I think that's the same thing with art. If art can do something, I think it should do something. And I don't think there's ever a. I mean, listen, I work in horror films. They do the worst things to yeah, people, and my favorite horror films are just like people peeling each other's skin off <laughs> yeah, and eating it. Right, you know, it's right. just like the worst. But film <laughs> is. Uh, I'm obsessed with this Roger Ebert idea. Film is a machine for empathy. It is a device, a physical box, metaphorically, I suppose. But think of it as a physical box and you open it and what pops out is an emotion that washes over you. And so as human beings, we have created devices, almost biological devices where we have the, it's why you see cliches and score swells and we have buttons we push. And if we push them in the right order, people smile mm. and there's the device. And with horror films, you know, we go, the scare is the easiest one to think about is to go, I want to be shocked or scared. Let's harness that, put it in a device. Most people don't want that. They don't right. want to be shocked or scared. Some people enjoy doing that to themselves as a way to to kind of be in charge of it. Right. Um, I just like the idea of having boxes for every human emotion possible. And one is to, you know, to think in my life that the sickest I've ever felt is watching a specific extreme French film and not something that happened to me out in the world. And that that feeling is harnessed in a box. We can control that. We have that. It's on a, a Blu-ray. It's mm, a physical right. thing where you go, Oh, in case we ever need to know the emotion of like twisted disgust, horror and sobbing at the same time, go to, you know, chapter 20 on this movie. Right. And right. here it is. So I think it should be made. It's up to individuals to guard themselves against things that trigger them. Okay. And it's it's a it's a part of life that I think sucks, but I have a really firm belief on that as an artist. We we're, we're not going to learn anything by sitting in caves. Right. And, you know, I don't want to hurt anybody, but I also think, you know, 13 reasons why it says it's about suicide. If you have trouble with that. Yeah. You don't watch it. Right. It's a worse world. I, I haven't even seen this. Yeah. But I know definitively it is a worse world where an artist can't put out an idea. Right. Even if that idea is wrong, then we all talk about it. We all go, you know, culture evolves and we go back to things from the 30s. 
and we go, oh yeah, and here's why that's wrong. And right. we learn about it. Yep. You know, at the time, nobody was going, blackface is illegal. Everybody was going, great, put it in movies. Right. And now we go back and we go, that was fucking awful. Yeah, and we right. can only talk about it because it existed and it was there. Right. There are answers to this that I don't have. Uh, I think, you know, you want to guard yourself against things, against these kind of trigger things. But I also think there's something in the middle for, you know, for friends and for context to go, all right, you're about to walk into an experience. You should know that from the outlook. And listen, it's up to you if you want to do that or not. Once you buy a pass to do it, you kind of give a sort of carte blanche for the artists to do what they're going to do. Right, right. Um, so it makes me think of two questions. One is just to push back a little bit on it to, to ask, please, um, what about, and I'm not even sure where I stand on it actually, but, but what about, um, our, it seems to me to be, um, a show that a lot of teens are watching and is a teenager responsible enough to make a decision to understand what might or might not be a trigger for them. Um, and maybe to not know that a suicide is actually going to be shown. And then along those same lines, the follow-up question is whether or not you believe in the suicide contagion and if that could be a factor Mm -hmm. from a production. Well, first of all, the suicide contagion, from the little I know about it, is a part of what 13 Reasons Why is about. You know, it's, uh, it's simply sharing this idea could lead to more of these ideas. Right. But we say that about everything. We yeah. say that about mass shootings and we say that about, you know, this inspires this or if people start doing this in art, what if other people try it? And uh, I'm not the kind of person who thinks, you know, I don't have murder in my heart. Oh, but I see what happened at Columbine and now I do. Right, right. You know, I think, uh, I don't think people are that shallow. Yeah. I think if somebody is on the path to thinking about suicide, their thought between not thinking about it and suddenly considering it probably does not reside in a single piece of art. Mm. Probably for most people. Um, I can see it happening. I'm not going to say that's an impossibility, but, uh, that's one factor of it. The other factor is suicide's a part of life. People do it. And you know, if we can contain it again, put it in that box, is it not better that teenagers watch this show and see it through that than it happens to one of their friends and nobody was around to go like, oh, fuck, we should have right. done something about that. Yeah. You know, there's there's all these other aspects you can learn what leads a person. I hate talking so much hypothetically about a thing I haven't seen. It's called 13 Reasons Why. Let's assume there are 13 reasons why this girl killed herself. I don't know. Maybe it's a dude. I don't know anything about this. What am I talking about? But uh, that's, let's say there's a thing called 13 Reasons Why. That's about 13 reasons people uncover why a a young girl killed herself. Yeah, okay, good. Learn 13 things that might lead a person to kill themselves. It's self-awareness. Should we all just sit inside and not talk about suicide if we're too young? Well, it promotes conversation, right? So then people start talking about the the possibility of suicide and and those conversations are had rather than kept uh, behind closed doors when all of a sudden there's a suicide in the school and and nobody had the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah. Right. Anytime anybody asks, are they too young? I think at 
18, we allow people to legally kill each other in a military volunteer for that. Yeah. 18. Right. So is, if we decided as a society that that's an okay norm, I mean, I make no call on that here in this. You probably don't like it as you've guessed, but I make no call on that here in this, uh, in this discussion. I simply say, we all sit around like that's just fine. Right. So there, there's your line yeah. at 18. You can do anything that is not as bad as that, yeah, right. as deciding to put your life yeah. in the balance. You know, what more self-autonomy could you have? Well, then you uh, can't drink a beer for a couple more years. Well, right? that's what I mean. That's the, that's the immediate thing, right? Right. Is to go, yeah. well, you're not responsible enough to drink a beer or yeah. watch the show on Netflix, but you are responsible enough to, you know, Hold to join the arm. Yeah. That's, yes. Yeah. yeah. Or so to I drive think, a possible weapon when you're 16 <laughs> yeah. in a gigantic sure, sure. car. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, don't even get me started Everybody on knows that. how the brain is not nearly developed at 16 and kids are making yeah. decisions behind a wheel. Yeah. And so, again, if we decide that that's as a society, you know, that's what we've signed off on, then right. we can use that as our barometer. Yeah. And I do think age, there is an age which certain things should not be shown to people without a kind of context. Right. They're not ready. Even, you know, even people my age, if they had never seen a horror film, I'm not going to show them the hardest thing I can possibly show them. I'm going to show them something that kind of introduces them to right. the ideas. Ease them into it. I just think that, you know, I think the worst invention of man is the taboo. Hmm. And that we've discovered over, we know this. You want to talk about data, we know this and we forget it all the time. But putting a thing in a closet, I asked you earlier if I could say fuck on your show. <laughs> yeah, right. you know, putting a fuck is the greatest example. <laughs> It's a, it's a word that does nothing. Hearing it does nothing. It disturbs no one. Bombs don't go off. Yeah. But we just decide that it's bad. And what happens as a result of that is that everyone feels bad when they hear it. They go, <laughs> right. should we be able to say that? You know, there's a string of vulgarities we can think about that are worse. And they're only bad because we said, like, don't, don't, don't ever talk say about it. Yeah, this right. is the thing that shall not be named. Yeah. Fuck that. I want to it's, bring all the things that shall not be named and put spotlights on yeah, them. Yeah, right. I want the John Waters method. I want people to just gross each other out in movies, talk about things they shouldn't be able to talk about. Right. You know, there are lines. People don't like comedians to talk about rape. People don't like movies to be about incest. Right. If this is a safe, consenting environment for artists, then get out there and make that art and put spotlights on these things. Right. And to, it's the same for me as writing a, a self-help book about rape. Hmm. It's a matter of going, hey, guys, this is happening in the world. We can't just sit here and not do anything about it. Right. Let's talk about it. Add to this conversation and, and you know, pull these taboos out. If nothing were taboo in the world, then we would have much better answers to some of the worst things yeah, in the world. Absolutely. So are all of the projects that you do um, related around suicide and depression in the film industry? Uh, it's a, something I focus on a lot now. Um, I produced a movie with Adam Rifkin and Penn Jillette because Penn Jillette is awesome. That was my avenue into the, the film industry uh, called Director's Cut, which actually I don't even know if it's ever going to come out. We made it years ago. Okay. I hear I hear it's coming out. I'm not in charge of that. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not in charge of anything with that movie. I don't know. But, um, you know, that was a, a movie that was kind of about turning a film cliche on its head. And, uh, 
And then there there was a Rob Zombie movie called 31. Rob Zombie is just a brutal horror director. And so I think that, you know, my interest is in subversion and cinema and taboos. And right now, especially after this last movie, it seems like, you know, depression is a, a you you probably know the number, but it's up there with uh, car deaths. Yeah. You know, oh, the leading, yeah. leading factor that kills people. We're killing ourselves at a higher rate than anything has ever killed us before. Yeah. Can you believe every 12.3 seconds there's a death by suicide in the U.S.? And in that 12.3 minutes, I'm sorry, every 12.3 minutes there's a death by suicide. And in that same 12.3 minutes there are 26 attempts. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, think, think about that and then think about what we spend our time on. And I don't want to be one of those people who goes, well, don't ever talk about terrorism because more people die of this or that. Right, but we right. have to gain perspective as a culture. Absolutely. And, and the only thing I can do about that besides making angry tweets all the time <laughs> is to to make art. That's my part of it. That's my my tiny, you know, one eight billionth of a service to the world is to go, okay, well, let's think about suicide as a culture. Right, let's think about right. depression as a culture. Yeah. And let's do it in this medium where, you know, a big thing we did with disposition is there are all these cliches of horror. There is uh, female nudity and blood and, you know, blood, sex, violence, all these, all these things people uh, think about in modern movies that has been used more and more for comedic effect. Mm. These these kind of funnier horror movies, and I wanted to go back to the '70s and do these paced, serious. You know, it has all the horror cliches, and they're all used in a way. There is so much nudity in this film, and it's all just awful violence and blood and things that are used to sell a point harder and harder and harder. And to to make people kind of think about these things in a way, 31 is a bit of that, too. It's mm -hmm. a very fun movie. It's a Malcolm McDowell movie. People are trying to get through a, like a all night murder puzzle type thing. But, you know, Rob Zombie's a guy who hits just as hard, if not harder than anybody making those kind of movies. Right. And so I'm interested in finding those extreme buttons. And then as my career has gone on, the question has become, what do we use them for? Right now it's depression. Yeah. Right now it's a lot of depression, especially because it's, you know, write what you know, mm -hmm. and it, it fits in my life a lot. But I think for me it's always where, what machines for empathy do we need? What should we be talking about as a culture? I'd love to do a movie about car crashes too because that's another thing we just don't car – everybody dies of cancer, suicide, and car crashes. And we just don't – those aren't, you know – those yeah. aren't things we're trying to make national laws or get rid of national laws or talk right, about on right. TV. And then a little Netflix show comes out and everyone goes, well, hold on a minute. We can't put more terrorist movies on here. What's with all these suicide movies? Yeah, right, right. So, yeah, I, I think I think for me that's always kind of it is, is find out what's not happening in the conversation yeah. that I have a, a take on and use the most – you know, extreme measures are like saying powerful tools. Yeah. Use the most powerful tools you can to hit as hard as you can, not pull a punch, just get in there and talk about it. Oh, it's awesome. I mean, you get to really express your views and your thoughts through these movies. Yeah. And, you know, if if someone sees it and thinks the same thing as, as they do with a controversial Netflix series. Right. They should, they should come out and punch, too. I yeah. mean, that is... 
you know, the verbal violence is so much better than the physical violence. Right, right. We should all be getting out there and going. Uh, my favorite words in the last hour and a half were, I want to push back on that a little bit. <laughs> I just feel like, you know, that's what we do. We go out and make our art pieces. And if you think eating each other's skin is a bad idea, then, you know. Hey, so is depiction completed now? Uh, disposition. Disposition, I'm sorry. The, the depiction of disposition is not yet finalized. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, no, 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 Disposition sorry, sorry. is... Uh... I am in... So I'm in a really challenging part right now. It's by the time anybody hears this, it'll be done and out there. But yeah, we'll see. Uh, let's hope, so. I, let's I, hope I know, we get know, this right? thing published by then. I know, right. Well, also, let's just check in on Eric 13 and make sure he's still around at that point. That would be good. Somebody just like call somebody, make sure I'm doing OK. All right. All right. That's my public plea on your show. Call somebody, make sure I'm still doing <laughs> sounds, OK. I will make but, that call myself. We're uh, thank you. We're struggling in a spot where we were working on sound design. I don't want to I want to respect someone's privacy, so I don't want to do okay. this too much. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, we had a great sound designer. It was my top pick, and it was too much for him. Okay. He just went. Too much know. money for him, you mean? No, 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 no. It <laughs> was, uh, yeah. It was, he was going to make too much. <laughs> he had to make the sound of the worst depression, yeah. and he had to watch these images of suicide over and over and over, and he was not in a place where he, he just said, I can't fucking do this. It's, you uh, I can't. You, you maybe we should have talked about that before I asked you your thoughts on Thirteen Reasons Why. <laughs> Holy shit! You just had yeah. him sit through all of that, and then like, you sent no, no, him no, off no, no. too. Oh like, man! All right, you can do this. You can do this. Just watch it a couple more times. You'll be fine. <laughs> right. Someone should call that guy. Actually, I'm yeah. going to go do that after this. But uh, you know, so then, then we kind of, and that's happened a couple times with the movie. There's just been stuff that's that's too, too hard. Yeah. And so now I'm doing it. Okay. And uh, that's what happens in an indie movie. So right, right. I had to go through samples of banging on everything I could and seeing what makes what sounds and find the worst sounds in humanity to use as the voice of this thing that does not have a physical form. Right, you know, right, it's, right. It's the darkness. It yeah. is a light goes out and a thing makes a sound and there's your monster. And... You know, you, you never get more than that. That's all it is. It's a thing that lives in her. It's a heavy weight. Right. So I needed to find the sound of the thing that I'm struggling with the most right now. Yeah. That is a hell of a task. Oh, my God. Yeah. And to sit there, you know, to give you an idea, one of my days of, of post-production about a week ago, I had to watch a uh, I feel like not spoiling it, even though I just told everybody they can't see it. <laughs> There's a gunshot in the movie. There's a fatal, you know, the worst kind, the one you don't want to see. The one people go, I wish I would have got a warning about that, and I didn't give them one. That's the gunshot you see. And I just had to watch it. A gunshot's very brief. Yeah. It's three frames and a sound, and I had to watch it on a loop for about four hours. Oh, my God. And, you know, you got to – it becomes wallpaper, and you have to not let it. Yeah. And that's the worst part of it is you go, oh, yeah, well, you're desensitized to all this violence. Mm. And that's very true as, as somebody in the horror community, but it's also when I'm making it, I need to make sure it's effective and right. I need to keep myself back. And the, the last little task that we have to do is to finalize this audio. And so I'm going back through and I'm making sure that, that every time this darkness calls out to her, it feels as just kind of guttural and visceral yeah. and, uh, like what I'm going through as it could. Right. And, right. you know, we, 
let's go back to where I had no idea what's causing this the last two months. Maybe we've, maybe we've <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I think uh, we may have just hit it. I like, I like to think of artist therapy, but it's also <laughs> a little bit of a little you know, damaging. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit. And you, you find, you know, I guess you find what you can take. Yeah. Right. You're capable of and you push yourself a little bit, but that's, we see a lot of suicides from artists and I think there's a whole conversation in that too. Yeah. Hey, so I'm, I'm also curious, uh, you know, it seems like this came from your very experience, yet you chose a woman to be the lead star. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious if there was a thought process behind that or she just stood out as the perfect person. Uh, I talked about that a little bit. I talked about that with her. She's a girlfriend in the movie, and we talked about that a little bit. And Sarah's uh, done love scenes with girls before. And we just kind of paused on it and went, okay, well, you know, what if we used a man in the scene or what if that character was played by a man? And you consider, you consider these things a lot more than people think you do. Mm. They think people just whitewash a movie to sell money or they just choose not to include these minorities or they choose to, you know, uh, have, have, uh, non-trans people play trans people or whatever. Right, right. And there, of course, there's a lot of ignorance that goes into that. I don't, I don't want to stand up for any of those people, <laughs> but man, did we scrutinize the fuck out of it? every little tiny piece of it had to become, is this the exact type of choice to give this feeling? Right. And ultimately the art had to make that call for us. We couldn't, you know, use this as a way of going, uh, let's put this or that element in it, even down to gender. Right. Which is a weird thing to talk about because we're talking about the minority women playing yeah. a role instead of men. So I guess right. I'm kind of discussing the opposite here. <laughs> when I wrote it, here's the here's the 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 cheat, the big reveal. I wrote it, you know, third person, and I went all I'm doing is writing a journal entry. Okay, it's a woman. Now it's a little different, and it allowed <laughs> me to at least tell the people immediately around me about this without them going. Hey, wait a second. <laughs> Isn't this just what you were doing yesterday? Right. So, you know, I, I, I chose, and I do this a lot, I'll take a couple elements of something that's too close and just flip them and see what happens. Yeah. And I literally just flipped her gender, which is, or my gender, I guess, which yeah. is how she wound up with a girlfriend because I didn't know how to write the opposite. <laughs> I've never been in that situation with a man. Wow, so it just okay. like... Okay, so it's well, one of those uh, stories where somebody wants to share something about themselves, but they're a little too embarrassed. So they say, I have this yeah, friend who, yeah. uh, <laughs> well, I okay. also thought, you know, you make it too on the nose and then you limit the expression of the people around you. Right. Right. And a, a film while directed by one captain of the ship is made up by that ship's crew. Yeah. And they are contributing, you know, as, as many hours on the days of production or whenever they're doing it, you guys are putting in pound for pound. Right. So yeah, Sarah stepped into that and she was able to have this relationship with uh, a girl played by Susie block. Just one of my favorites. Uh, she was in a great movie called entrance. People should check out, but, um, Susie uh, hadn't done those kind of scenes before and Sarah had and that adds this whole dynamic and that's just one aspect of you know what she brings to it right a woman being stalked by something in a movie has more of a trope feel to it and I think that adds a weird dynamic Mm. where we start thinking about you know here's a movie about a woman being stalked that isn't talking about rape at all right and for horror movies that is kind of an underlying tone where like 
we can't have a stalking a woman movie without there being a subcontext of this. And now we've invented one just right. by switching up pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. nobody really thinks about is this. A, well, I say that and then I say people come up with all sorts of different things. So maybe maybe those will be festival headlines when it gets out is, hey, this movie about rape. And I'll go, damn it. I think I missed the mark. <laughs> I think, I, I think I totally missed the mark. I don't know. Yeah, you funny. just you mix up pieces and you see what happens. You give people their own room for expression. And for me, I'm so excited by what other people do. I mean, I'm always, uh, anytime, you know, an actor or, uh, the man, the people who did our, our set work, um, our production design and all of that, just everybody will, especially just brought a ton to it. And, you know, the, the more I release myself from certain parts of it, those areas instantly became the parts that were most full. Mm. You know, Sarah embodies this thing that I couldn't have told her how to. Right. And it's because she takes it from her experience. Now yeah. I look at the movie, I don't see myself in it all that much. Right. When I when you write it and it's on paper, I mean that's that's the purest it is out of the creator's head. Yeah. And I think, especially in film, that's it could go either way, but for me, that's the worst it is. Right. It's like this is all just me right now. There's no conversation here. Once we start rapping in all these other people, yeah. You just, you know, this is becoming the reoccurring theme, but you get more voices in the conversation and if you can select and tune just the right voices that kind of go into the stream of what you're doing but had better ideas than you could come up with. Right. Right. You get a better piece at the end. Yeah. yeah. That was Sarah. So you <laughs> got to do a little bit of letting go as the producer it sounds like. And, oh, and putting a lot of trust in others. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I have a huge problem with that. You know, I hand selected people to right, right. hold polls. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, that's awesome. So that was part of it for me is you find the people you trust because of their previous work. Yeah. And that allowed me to let go of those parts for somebody who's otherwise really controlling. Right. And especially my previous experience with the two other movies I produced were these are these are guys that are great. They're going to mm. go off and do their own thing and I'm going to stand back and watch them fly. Right. And that was, you know, cool. I wanted to do my little part to make sure that movie was getting made, but it's a tiny, tiny part. Right. And then the geniuses fly off to work. And yeah. I think that's, that's helped me let go of, of some of the stuff I direct myself. And other than the film festival, there's no way to get a trailer even of it or anything. You want one, don't you? Why don't you just I, ask? I, you I'm going to send it to you. That well, would be phenomenal. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. It I was going to be googling be it all wild. night. I'd be out in the wild. Um. So what? Uh, what's on the docket for you next? Uh, next project, or is it uh, going and hiding in your bedroom again for a while? <laughs> are you you know this is exactly we have the amount of time exactly it takes from you to go from worrying about me and following up with a phone call to poking me about my depression that's how long sorry that's, sorry it's this, it's this jovial tone that that's i right. have that does this allow people to get in here um i think that you know the the festival we made this movie as a calling card we made it to go here are the things we want to do. We want to do blood and guts and gore and nudity and taboos and all of these things. And we want to do them in this specific different way. And so we set it up as a, a piece that is just as much about look what we want to do and how we can do it as it is about the, the vehicle itself. Mm. I've talked a lot about the content of the movie, but also as a producer, we sunk 
you know, a bunch of money into this thing so we could all demonstrate what we wanted to do. Yeah. A lot of people working on it are working in commercials and stuff now. That's where the money is. Right. And they jumped on it because they haven't had a good art project in a while. Yeah. And this is just pretentious art house flick written all over it. Yeah. People were describing it as a French movie when they, <laughs> we were making it and they're going, this has a real French sensibility to it. And so, you know, it, it's, it has art house all over it. We want to take that to festivals. We want to go, this is what we can do. This is what we're about. People pigeonhole you. They put you in a box right. You make something. They go, this is the kind of thing you make. So we said, well, let's make the thing we want to make, have all our own creative control over it. And that's why we did it short so we could pack as much money as we could get into making sure it doesn't feel like a short. It feels like a piece of a film. Nothing about it says independent or small in any way. Right. And we hope that people will see it. And then when they have that thing where they go, well, who should we get for this woman stalked by depression, horror thriller? Hey, what about that exact, that safe bet we saw at that festival? Right, right. Um, after this, you know, you immediately go into writing more stuff. Yeah. So the day that I finish overseeing posts and doing some of the posts myself, yeah. I jump right into, you just churn out as many scripts as you can. So when you go talk to people at these festivals, they go, mm. they ask what you ask, what else are you are working on? Yeah. And I could go, these are the five stories I have in mind. And then try and read them and see if any of that, you know, right. any of that. Is. And also double feature. I mean, we go back on uh, double feature we do every week. And that's also a more immediate thing for me to get out some of these. Uh, uh, I just saw American Honey, which was a film that's very slice of life. It's three hours of wandering around with this chick and seeing her experience. And and it doesn't solve the world in the end of the movie. Right. And. Right. So I'm having a lot of uh, artistic ideas about that, and I can go and talk to somebody about that on a week-to-week basis. Or, you know, we'll even do um, we'll do a couple little narrative things. We made a film set in the world of the podcast, which is a really bizarre thing. Uh, that's not out yet, but the people – there's a Patreon. If you go on doublefeature.fm, there's so many – you'll see all of this stuff. We don't yeah. hide it. Right. I don't right. hide it any any more than I just hid that URL, doublefeature.fm. Yeah, and you people. should not hide it. You could even say it one more time. Uh, doublefeature.fm. <laughs> FM, you know, like radio. It's a great yeah. URL. Very yeah. happy with it. And uh, there's a Patreon on there. We're going to give the Double Feature movie to people on there, and that's all the old – back episodes with gunshots and stuff in them on there too. But we did a series uh, last year. Um, One of the things where I was just feeling down and I felt like we needed to do something. We did a series with ironically fitting the suicide girls, which is an alternative uh, pin of the, probably the most well-known alternative pinup sort of uh, I I say pinup. It's naked girls. Yeah. It's naked girls and alternative culture. What's not to like? The only reason I know about them is when. (laughs) You know, if there's anything just in the world, it's that people searching for suicide on the internet might occasionally see pretty naked girls. I think that's, you know, that's nice, but that's a great, the site, uh, although not specific, how they got the name Suicide Girls is a whole nother cool artsy thing. Uh, has nothing to do with it, but also has, you know, it's a lot of dark culture that right. tries to do a jovial thing. Yeah. And it was post-election and I was in a huge 
Sorry to everybody with depression who lives in the United States post-election. Yeah, That's like yeah, if really. life wasn't hard enough for you. Um, but, you know, it was a it was a rough time for me in super liberal California where you could walk mm. around and people are just crying on the street. Just strangers just walking around sobbing days after this. It was a dark time. And so we did something uh, kind of about the political climate with pinup models that people have never heard speak. And we did a thing that's on a podcast which is their speak? voices and it's kind of funny <laughs> right it's a it's a weird thing to do because they're known for how they look yeah, you've right. mostly uh thankfully for the advent of internet video some but uh, mostly you don't know what they sound like and so we did a podcast where they do a, a little bit of a audio drama it's not a huge thing it's little five minute intros to episodes from last year um they're on the website somewhere you know what if you look up double feature suicide girls i'm hoping that comes up okay. in your in your internet give search. It a shot. and yeah it's just their voices there's no visual component to the show so we also right. thought that was really funny to you know have a collaboration with people known specifically for what they look like some would say exploited for what they look like right and then to to turn the other direction and go, yeah, and we're going to have them act on this. Also, yeah. we don't know if any of them can act or what they sound like <laughs> right, or if their right. voices are audibly pleasing. And yeah. we just said, fuck, let's do it. And it was a real fun project. That's so awesome. it's, it's those kind of little things that'll, that'll show up every once in a while. Yeah. Cool. So, um, any, uh, parting advice or suggestions for anybody who's listening that may be struggling right now? I am a huge proponent as an artist of artist therapy. We've talked about some of the dangers of that, which honestly I'm not sure I've ever considered outside of, uh, you know, thinking to myself the recent months. So yeah. know about that. It's good we talked about that, actually. I'm really happy we talked about that. Um, but, you know, get it out in your writing. Yeah. Make some art with it. Don't worry about how good it is. Just make stuff. And, uh, and really, I think through the conversation, you've had a lot of, I can't wait to hear this show, by the way, you've, you have had so much, uh, to say about this that has been insightful to me, oh, that's uh, great prob to hear. probably more so even than the other way. So thanks <laughs> for you for doing me the service and, and, you know, following that stuff. I think people should also, as we had with the, the 13 reasons conversation, be careful what's out there. Life is just as scary as the Netflix queue. Right. So you know, that's another part of that for me is, yeah, it might provoke some emotions on Netflix, but it might happen. You know, you might walk out your front door and somebody puts a gun in their mouth. Yeah. So yeah. you got to be careful in the world and, uh, and try and watch out for yourself. Watch your own back in that regard, make art, watch your own back out of the conversation. Right. That sounds like some great advice. Well, I want to thank you so much uh, for taking the time to speak with me. Uh, it has been a very uh, intriguing conversation, very enjoyable for me, and I really appreciate uh, you taking time away from your day for that. When this engulfs your life and you end up doing 300 episodes on this series, <laughs> as don't worry, you inevitably will. That's how these things go. Uh, I'd love to come back and talk to you. It has been great. Thank you yeah. so much. All right. Thanks, Eric. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text to 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. 
If you're a man who has experienced depression and would like to be interviewed for the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.